Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Most of us work over 2,000 hours a year. We do our jobs, please our bosses, provide for our families, and hope to save enough to someday retire. And sometimes we wonder if there's a point to it all. Why not ask our Creator what He thinks? Teaching team member Bob Cargo starts a new series entitled, What Do You Work For? With this message entitled, The Story Begins, Work is Good which covers Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 18. Thank you for joining us today. I'm sure every one of us in the room here has heard uh, this expression uh, to say, those two things are like oil and water. I'm sure you've heard that. In other words, just like oil and water don't mix, we might refer to two things and say, those things just don't mix. They're like oil and water. Now, whether you're inside the church, inside church world, so to speak, uh, here or somewhere else, or outside the church, uh, there's a very good chance that many, many of us in the room and throughout our country and throughout the world think that our work and our Christianity are like oil and water. That business and Christianity are like oil and water. That uh, education and Christianity are like oil and water. That uh, the arts are like oil and water. Or government and law, those things are like oil and water. Oh, sure, we ought to be honest people and people of integrity at work and tell the truth, and that is very important. And sure, we should look for a chance to share faith at work. But beyond that, we might be scratching our heads how the two would connect. The attitude is, here's the kingdom of God, and it's churchy, and here's my work, and it's not related to the kingdom of God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. But if you do think that way, it's not your fault. (laughs) It's the fault of us who are church leaders and Bible teachers. We have probably failed you in helping you to connect the dots between what you do all week long and the kingdom of God and the gospel. Dorothy Sayers was a renowned British essayist who lived in the beginning and the middle of the 20th century. She wrote an article during World War II entitled, Why Work? And I think her words here give an accurate accusation against the church. And here's what she says, really the leaders of the church. She says, and nothing has the church so lost her way on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Well said. But the question is why? Why make good tables? How do you connect the dots? You see, our problem is this, that we as teachers within the church of Jesus Christ, we have not helped you to see how your work has intrinsic value in and of itself in the eyes of God. 
and how your work every day as a banker or a real estate agent or an accountant or a teacher or a nurse, or the list goes on and on, how it fits into a larger story, and that larger story is the story of the kingdom of God. We have failed you. Imagine, if you would, a soldier during World War II. A bomb goes off close to him. He suffers a concussion. He wakes up 30 minutes later, and when he wakes up, he has no idea that he's an American soldier fighting against Nazi Germany and against the Axis powers. He barely knows his name, and all he really knows is he's struggling to stay alive. Now, do you think it would help him if he could recover the larger story that he's part of? I think so. <laughs> Absolutely. And it will make all the difference in the world to you and me if we can understand the larger story. Today we started into a five-week series entitled, What Do You Work For? Your Part in a Larger Story. We want to help you connect the dots. And today's sermon is entitled, The Story Begins, Work is Good. And so since we're going to talk about the beginning of the story, let's look at the beginning of the Bible. Would you stand with me, please, as we read sections from Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. Hear the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their, all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then to verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, after reading that passage, my guess is a lot of you are probably thinking, Adam and Eve, really? The Garden of Eden, really? Now I'm sure there's no connection between Christianity and my work. I don't know at all how to connect the dots. I'm going to try to help you with that today. And we want to start with the story of someone who's thought deeply about this, a businessman in our church, He's thought about this. He's looked into the scriptures. And man, his testimony is great. Give your attention to the screen as we hear, hear from Keith Wilmot. Hi, my name is Keith Wilmot. I am uh, an executive at Coca-Cola. And I am responsible for a group called Insights, Ideas, and Creativity. And we have an internal agency that we've created that helps the, the company solve complex business challenges or opportunities for new growth and new ideas to drive the business. 
So the work that I do in creativity and driving applied creativity inside of Coca-Cola has, I believe, got, uh, scriptural and God-ordained um, aspects to it. God is, is the master creator. Um, it's the first sentence of the Bible, God created, and, and I believe He's designed us as creative beings. And I'm able to apply that reality to the work that I do. How I, how I relate it back um, to the gospel is really understanding what Christ did for me. I mean, Christ, Christ died for me, and that is such a part of who I am. I can't separate that from my job at Coke. Um, I can't, you know, on Sunday, thank Jesus for dying on the cross, and then Monday go in like any normal executive that doesn't know Jesus. I, I don't know how to do that. And because he died for me, and because that is the, the overarching compelling reason for my life, and the reality that he's in control, and that he has me in this, this job, I can't help but think through ways to make that known to other people. And the only way that I can make that known to other people at Coke is to build relationships, deep relationships with them. I oftentimes hear the gospel story told in two parts. And the two parts go like this, you know, man fell and God redeemed. And that is absolutely the gospel story. But I believe that it's actually a four-part story. It's God created the world and there's, there's, there's value in us really seeing God as the master creator. Secondly is obviously, you know, man fell and then God redeemed. But the fourth part of the gospel story that I believe is, is, is a whole part of the story and it's alive today is God is redeeming culture. Um, the kingdom is now and he calls us as believers to make kingdom impact where we live, work and play. So as believers, we have this really neat opportunity to, to get our hands in God's work. And that's really powerful, and, and, I, and I believe it has to happen in all aspects of culture. When I say redeem culture, um, I mean the arts, I mean music, um, community and city impact, community and city transformation. And some people, they, they look at that and they go, it's so big, it's, it's unachievable. I look at it and say, what one impact, one life impact, one project that we do that impacts the lives of the people in that community is, is, is achieving that. So we have this rich opportunity that God's called us to do to redeem culture. And it's all about just changing our perspective a little bit, seeing our call as individuals wherever God has us and being able to make that impact on a, on a daily basis. That's really cool. Um, because you know what, the gospel is cool. It's freedom. There's, there's freedom in the gospel that we're able to redeem our culture for good, um, and that's a powerful thing to be a part of. Great story. Insert in your bulletin is an insert called Points to Remember. Let's get, let me ask you to take that out. It'll help you follow along with what I'm saying. Keith talked about four parts of the story, and in this five-week series, we want to help connect those dots for you. The next three weeks, we're going to talk about the fall and redemption and restoration. And then week number five, we're going to wrestle with some practical down-to-earth issues related to connecting your work and your faith. But today, we're looking at the things that lay the foundation, that give a framework to the whole thing. A lot of stories and examples will come in the weeks to come. But today, the foundation, the framework. Today, out of Genesis 1 and 2, we want to see five important truths they're all connected to each other, and they are connected to what you do in your work all week long. Let's dig in. The first one is this, that creation is good, that matter matters. 
Matter matters. Creation is good. The very first verse of the Bible, as Keith said, is in the beginning God created the heavens. That's not heaven. That's the heavens. The sky, the stars, the sun, the moon. And he created the earth. This dirt, this stuff right here in front of us. He made it all. You see, the idea that this earth doesn't matter to God and that work related to this earth doesn't matter to God doesn't come from Christianity or Judaism. It comes from what is called Platonic dualism. Plato and other Greek philosophers taught that the physical world is evil and bad. The spiritual world is good. And unfortunately, that teaching snuck its way into the church early in the history of the church and especially during the Middle Ages. It led the Roman Catholic Church to exalt the work of priests and monks and nuns and to hold in disregard the work of farmers and carpenters and stonemasons and bankers and traders and salesmen, as well as homemakers and seamstresses and milkmaids. But God said, matter is good. God said, my son will come incarnate in an earthly body. And with an earthly body and earthly bud, he'll redeem mankind. And before he redeems mankind, he's going to be a carpenter for most of his life, working with things that are good. And God also has said that someday at the end of time, God isn't going to destroy, totally destroy the earth. He's going to purify it with fire and redeem it and restore it. And matter, redeemed matter, will last forever. And therefore, the leaders of our theological tradition have affirmed that the creation is good and those who work with earthy things, that work is good and it pleases God. It's just as spiritual as what a preacher does. Martin Luther put it this way, the leader of the Protestant Reformation. You won't see it on the screen, but hear it. He said, it looks like a small thing would have made cleans or cooks or does other housework, but because God's command is there, the command to subdue the earth, even such small work must be praised as a service of God, far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns. Seemingly secular works are a worship of God, and they are obedience, well-pleasing to God. William Tyndall, another preacher of the Puritan age, said, on the outside it will look like washing dishes and preaching the Word of God are different, and they are on the outside. But as it pertains to pleasing God, there's no difference at all. And William Perkins said, the actions of a shepherd in keeping a sheep is as good a work in God's eyes as the action of a judge giving a sentence or a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. In other words, work, legitimate, healthy, contributing work has intrinsic value in the eyes of God. And you can not only worship God in it, you can worship God through it. That leads us to the second point of today, and that is that mankind is good. Mankind is good. We're made in the image of God. Obviously, in this text, mankind, humankind, are different than anything else. We're the only part of creation that is made in God's image. The Latin term for that is the imago Dei. The imago Dei, the image of God. And the imago Dei means that we both mirror God and we represent God. We mirror God in the sense that his glory is seen as us. We are like him in a way that no other creation, part of creation is. It's like, as one theologian put it, it's like God said, if you want to see what I'm like, take a look at my most distinguished creature, mankind. Yes, that image is marred. 
but the glory is still there. Not only do we mirror God because we're made in his image, we represent God. It says in this passage that God said to us, rule over the earth, over all of my creation. That means, in other words, we're his trustees. We're his ambassadors. We are his vice presidents. And when you do your work Monday through Friday, it is a way of taking care of his creation and using his creation for him. You're his agent in doing that. Chuck Colson has famously said, we are hardwired for work by virtue of being made in God's image. And John Stott, an Anglican theologian and pastor, has said, without work, we are not fully human. Now, he's not saying there, if you're unable to work, you're less than human. But if you're able to work, work is part of being a human. And I don't mean by that, and he doesn't, that it's work that's necessarily associated with a paycheck. It may or may not be. Any kind of work whatsoever that is a good kind of work, a good endeavor, is something we do as an expression of our humanity. Have you noticed how children work so hard at playing? They work hard at it because they're wired to work at having fun. Retirees can work as volunteers. My dad, after he retired, worked hard in his garden. There wasn't a day of his life he didn't work. He took care of things because to be human is to rule over nature. And that brings us to the third point of our message, the central point, that work is good. Work is good. Now, I want to admit something. When I say that, I know that for many of you, you're thinking, Bob, you don't understand my work. <laughs> my work does not feel good. It feels like anything but spiritual. It's hard. It's no fun. And that's what we're going to talk about next week about the fall in your work. That's why it's hard. <laughs> But the reason we're drawn to it, the reason we glory in it, the reason we celebrate it, the reason when things are going right in those rare occasions, we really, really enjoy it is because in its essence, work is good. Now, it's good, first of all, because God is a worker. He was the first worker. Look again at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God was the first worker. Also in this passage we see that work was given to Adam before the fall. Before sin entered the picture he was a worker. Yes, in chapter 3 the fall happens and there are thorns and thistles in the sweat of our brow. But he was given a wonderful gift of work in a perfect world. Okay? Let me give you a big picture here and then give you a couple of examples. I'll give you uh, some key words. Work is cultivation. It is service. It is culture making. It is shalom. And it is worship. Now I want to admit to you right off the bat that the Bible also says that work is a way to supply your own needs and take care of yourself, of you and your family. And work is a way of accumulating money to give to other people. That is absolutely true. But those are not foundational reasons. These are foundational reasons. Let's walk through the one by one and let's explore it as quickly as we can. First of all, work is seen as cultivation. Celebrating beauty and healing brokenness, promoting good and opposing evil. Think about the picture of what a gardener does. A gardener is working with God. A gardener is working with created things. And out of these created things and with the help of God, so to speak, 
things are produced that weren't there before. Things of beauty, things uh, that are good for people who consume those things that are grown in that garden. How does your work, in a sense, use the things of the earth and do good? Does it reflect beauty? Does it promote beauty? Does it heal brokenness? I think it probably does if you stop and think it. Think about it. Work is an act of cultivation. Secondly, work is seen as service to human flourishing. Human flourishing. Now, when it comes to this idea of human flourishing, I think it might be true to say this. That when it comes to things like education or health care or even law and government, we can see immediately how those things are purposed for human flourishing, to serve people. That's what educators do and healthcare workers, etc. Now, let me admit to you, I have a concern these days that in our culture, government and healthcare and uh, the arts and, and almost anything you can think of are starting to be compromised as simply a way of making money rather than serving people. That is tragic. In the past, people haven't seen it that way. It's a way of serving. But how about business? Is business a way simply to make money or is it a way to serve people? There's a book I want to recommend to you by uh, Jeff Van Duzer. It's called Why Business Matters to God. And in that book, Van Duzer has made a statement that's rather controversial. He has basically said, for a Christian, the goal of his business should never be to maximize profits. Now, you have to make profits or you don't stay in business. But there's a difference between maximizing profits and making profits. The goal is to, to, to encourage and serve human flourishing. And if your profits are destroying people instead of helping them, you've got to change the way you do business. And the bottom line is to help and serve other people. That's the goal. In fact, it was very interesting back in the day of the Puritans in preaching as they preached about business. Richard Baxter denounced certain economic abuses, and among them were things like this. Taking more for goods than they're worth, making products seem better than they are, concealing flaws in a product, taking advantage of another person's necessity, and, get this, asking as high a price as you think you can get. Now, some of you may be thinking, I thought that's what business was all about. But there's a fine difference between the goal being serving other people and always maximizing profits. Yes, you have to make profits, but the real bottom line is serving and helping people. Let me recommend another book. It's called Business for the Common Good by Kenan Wong and Scott Ray. Some of their chapter titles are interesting. Chapter 7, Leadership and Management, Serving Employees. Let me ask you, if you're in business, do you think of management and leadership as a way of serving your employees or only getting something out of your employees? It should be service. Chapter 8, Marketing, Serving Customers. Is marketing a way to serve your customers or only to get money from your customers? It should be a way of serving your customers. Chapter 9, Stewardship and Sustainability serving the garden, and serving our neighbors. You see, my friends, your work is a way of loving your neighbor. Your work is a way of loving your neighbor, and that changes everything. Work as cultivation, work as service. Thirdly, work as culture-making, culture-making. Uh, think, if you would, about a wilderness, and then think of a developed culture. What is between the wilderness and a developed culture in that location? I'll tell you what stands in between the two. It's work. 
And how those people work, including arts, including music, including literature, including law and business, how people work in that location is what transforms it from a wilderness into a developed culture. And the way they work, and the way they go about it, and the way they celebrate all these endeavors, every good endeavor, is what creates a culture. Every bit of work creates culture. Let me give you some words from uh, Dr. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor. I really recommend that book to you. And in this book, he connects the idea of culture-making and cultivation. It's a long quote. I don't have it on the screen, but really pay attention because he says it so much better than I could. He says, talking about the image of gardening, so we're not to relate to the world as park rangers whose job is not to change the space of these created things and only preserve them as they are, nor are we to pave over the entire garden of the created world and make it a parking lot. No, we are gardeners who take an active stance toward changing it for the good. Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. The pattern is found in all kinds of work. Farming takes the physical material of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our word culture comes from the word cultivation. My goodness, isn't that exciting to think that your work has that meaning. That's God's purpose for it. Work is cultivation, service, culture making. Also, work as a part of shalom. The word shalom is the, is the Hebrew word for peace. In the Garden of Eden, there was shalom. Someday in the New Jerusalem, there will be shalom. And a good endeavor is an endeavor that brings a sense of shalom to people in their lives. If you are a real estate person, residential real estate person, if you develop and build homes for people, do not do it just to make a buck. Do it. So when somebody moves into that home, they have a sense of shalom, a sense of peace, and that peace reflects the shalom of God. It's a whole new meaning for building a house. If you're a physical therapist, don't just do it because you got a physical therapy degree and you need to make a living. Do it because when you do your work as a physical therapist, it brings a little bit of shalom, a little bit of healing to a person whose body has been broken. If you're selling running shoes, do it because when a person goes out and runs and they feel physically invigorated, it helps them taste just a little bit what shalom is like. Our work is a part of letting people taste the shalom of God's kingdom. And lastly is this, in a foundational way, our work is worship. And our work is an altar. I love telling the story of a monk many centuries ago named Brother Lawrence. One of his duties at the monastery was to wash dishes. And so he had a sign over his sink that said, worship is held here three times a day. 
And he didn't just mean that while he was washing dishes, he was praising God and singing hymns. It meant that he was worshiping God by washing dishes. My friends, that can be your work as well. You can worship God by selling real estate, by teaching students, by crunching numbers as an accountant. The list goes on and on. And as you do it, you can worship. As one of the authors I've quoted already says, when Christians go off to work, they are offering themselves up to God. Do you think that way? You can, no matter what your calling is. Let me give you a couple of examples. One comes from Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. He tells the story of a doorman in Manhattan named Mike. Mike is a friend of his wife, Kathy. Mike works and has been working for about 20 years at an apartment building with about 100 families in it. He's been working there for 20 years, and he's now in his mid-60s. And everybody knows about Mike's pride and joy in the work that he does. He takes great pride in helping the residents load and unload their cars and find parking spaces. He takes great pride and joy in keeping the lobby clean and the front of the building clean. He takes great pride in remembering the name of every child in the building and calling everyone by name as they come in and out and giving them just a little bit of joy. Now, Tim Keller uses this example as an example of how every form of work that's legitimate and good has dignity. And he says in the book, basically, a lot of us in our culture would look down on a man like Mike, but he does his work with pride because it is a work with dignity. But I would also say to you that if Mike is doing this as a worshiper of Jesus, his work is a way of serving, it is cultivation, it is culture making, it is a little bit of shalom, it is a service to God. One summer in my early 20s, I worked for a carpenter like that one summer. He worked so hard, it's such tough work. But his mentality was just what I'm talking about, and he did it with joy and with excellence. Let me give you another example, an example of a guy named Jim Dudley. Jim is a member of All Souls Fellowship, a granddaughter church of ours down in Decatur. He was converted at Penn State through a ministry called Athletes in Action. He was discipled at Sanford University through campus outreach, and he's now a business owner, and his business is expanding now into three or four different cities, and his business is a car wash business called Wash Me Fast. And the byline of their logo says, wash me fast, clean cars, clean water. And their business model is a business model by which, and it's right there on their website, one car wash gives one day of clean water to one person in a third world country. There are five million people around the world that have a hard time finding clean water. And their business model includes, at least for many periods of time during sort of certain times of initiative to do this, that for every car that's washed, one person gets one day of clean water in another part of the world. They are engaged relationally with these people around the world, helping people find clean water. I ask, I ask also, Jim, I said, how else does being a Christian affect your work besides this model of, of what to do with your profits? He said, well, first of all, it affects his management. They have a holistic development plan for their managers and for their employees. They care about them as whole persons, and they try to develop them as human beings and as workers. They also try to find the right place for them to work within their organization. And if that is not a fit, they celebrate a transition somewhere else. And if somebody outgrows them, they can celebrate that for somewhere else. They want to see their managers flourish and develop as whole persons. I asked, how does this affect your hiring? And he said, honestly, sometimes that's tough. But let me tell you one story. There was a man we met at a Salvation Army 
shelter. We found out in getting to know him that he used to work as an automobile detailer. We hired him for our business. He is out of the shelter. He is living out on his own. His life is being redeemed because they just didn't hire the safest person off the street. They hired a guy at the Salvation Army shelter and said, we want to give you a chance to work again. I said, is this the only way you give money to help other people through your, your business like this? He said, no. My family and I tithe and give more than a tithe. And he says, quote, part of our company and family mission statement is to be excessively generous in every area of life. Now think about this example. Wash Me Fast is using the resources of the earth, water and soap and metal and plastic, to clean cars. That's a good thing. It is a way of culture making. I want to live in a culture with clean cars, not dirty cars. It's a way of service. He serves his employees. He serves his managers. And he serves thirsty people on the other side of the world, as well as serving the people that want their car cleaned. Is it Shalom? I think the clean water makes me think about the water of life. And if the new heavens and the new earth have automobiles, I think they'll be clean automobiles. So it's pointing ahead to shalom. Now let me ask you, in what way does your work use the resources of the earth to serve people and do them good, to promote human flourishing, to cultivate humanity and creation, to heal brokenness, to promote what is good, to celebrate what is beautiful. I'm sure if you think about it a little bit, you can start connecting the dots. And here's my question now. Are you doing it as an act of worship? Oh, you can do it just going through the motions. Or you can actively say, Lord, be with me today as I use these resources in front of me to bless these people in this way. And I want to do it as an act of worship to you. And if you do it as an act of worship, you need to know this. It matters forever just as much as my work as a preacher. In the eyes of God, there is no difference. What I'm doing is part of the kingdom, and what you're doing is part of the kingdom, and it matters forever. That's what work is all about. It's not about self-advancement. That's what our culture tells us. It's not about getting as rich as you can be. That's what our culture tells us. It's about serving and worshiping, serving and worshiping, serving and worshiping. Not only is matter good, not only is mankind good, not only is work good, two other quick observations. Number four is this, not being alone is good. <laughs> not being alone is good. We're supposed to do this as families and in community with other people. Genesis 2.18, what a great verse. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. So he creates Eve. And from the very beginning he envisioned it would be Adam and Eve. Now, what this means is we do our work together as families. We do our work together in community with other people. Work is about relationships. Work is about relationships. And it doesn't have to be work that has a paycheck. Let me underline that. That's why some of the hardest working people in this room that God is very pleased with are stay-at-home moms. Nobody works more than they do. There may not be a paycheck that comes every week, but it's work that, yes, contributes to human flourishing. If you're not working for a paycheck right now, you can be volunteering to help other people, and that is work that is the glory of God. And this is exactly, my friends, why moms and dads, hear me well, this is why children need to be taught to work. Can I get, it? Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Yeah, there you go. It is important for your child to learn to work. And when you teach your child to work, 
you're helping your son or daughter be fully human and learn how to glorify God. Now, even if you and your spouse work in very different fields, I think it's always great when husbands and wives, they sort of work together in a business together or calling together. My mom and dad were like that. My wife has been an integral part of my ministry most of my life. But there's also a difference. She's a teacher here at this school. I'm a pastor here with church planting. Maybe your work of you and your spouse are entirely different. An accountant and a real estate person, I don't know what it might be. But I do know this, that if you see the larger story, if you see a unified vision and purpose for work, then your work can be connected because it's connected in the larger story of the kingdom of God. We do it as families. We do it connected with other people. And lastly and very importantly, stopping is good. (laughs) Stopping is good. The Sabbath was given before the fall. And it was given for this reason. We were made for someone more important than our work. See, the Bible says here that God rested on the seventh day. Now, God doesn't get tired, so why did he rest? Adam and Eve were given the Sabbath to rest before the fall, before there was sweat on their brow and thorns and thistles, before work was exhausting. So why did they rest? They rested for the sake of a relationship that is more important than work. They rested to focus upon the relationship that matters most, the relationship between creator and creature. That was the reason for it. And you see, also, my friends, if you never stop working, if you can't take Sabbath, it probably means there's an idol in your life. That's what it means. You see, God created boundaries for work and limits for work. And those boundaries and those limits remind us that the work gives meaning to life. It is not the meaning of life. And therefore, we stop from our work, even though we worship when we do it, even though it gives meaning. And we stop for the meaning apart from our work. And we focus on the relationship with our God, our creator, our redeemer. See, in preparing this message, I realized that most of the idols that we put in the place of God were present before the fall. Think about it. Marriage and family, sex, beauty, power, and work itself. Those are the things we turn into idols. And so God creates a way of reminding us, stop. Shabbat, stop, and just focus on me. And it helps us be free from the idol of work. The truth is this, isn't it? That every one of us here, we have turned the created things of this world into idols, sometimes our work. So what's the solution to that? When John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is working and I am working. Interesting. Jesus said, my father is working and I am working. What is the work that he was referring to? I think he was referring to the work of redemption. The work that he would come and live a perfect life and die a grisly death on a cross and be raised from the dead so that we could be redeemed image bearers and redeem workers who know him forever. And if you want your work to last forever, trust in the work of Jesus as your redeemer. And that will be our focus of week three in this series. You see, as Keith Wilmot put it, there are four parts of this story. Let me ask you to look at this graphic that was used a number of years ago in another series. Here are the four parts of the story. Notice the pictures. There's creation with all of its beauty. There's the fall with all of its barrenness. There is redemption with the cross of Christ in the middle. And there is consummation at the end of time that is even more grand and glorious and fruitful than creation was. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at fall and redemption and consummation. 
That's where we're going. But I think what Keith said is so true. We don't focus enough on parts one and four, do we? We don't focus enough on parts one and four, and we should. It reminds me of the children's catechism that we taught our kids when they were little. And the first few questions went like this. Who made you? God. And what else did God make? All things. And why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. And why should you glorify God? Because he loves me, made me, and takes care of me. You see, believer, he made you and he redeemed you. There's a little story I heard many years ago about a little boy that with his knife and with a great piece of wood, he whittled out a boat. And he attached a string to that boat and he would go down to the creek behind his house and he would put the boat in the creek and he would pull it back in the string and he would put it in and he would pull it back and he would play with it. Story goes one day there had been a big rainstorm, maybe not as big as last night here, but a big rainstorm. And the boat got away from him and he lost it. One day he was walking through the little town where he lived and he noticed in the window of a pawn shop his boat. And he rushed in and he told the man, that's my boat, that's my boat. The man said, I don't know where that boat came from, but it can be yours for $5. So the little boy went home and he did jobs around the house and his parents paid him $5 and he came back and he bought the boat. And when he walked out of the store, he said, little boat, you are twice mine. I made you and then I bought you back again. My friends, believers, Lord made you and he bought you back again. And not only because he is your redeemer, because he is your creator, he has given you an amazing calling. And it is not a calling that you live out in and through this church. It is a calling that you live out nine to five, Monday through Friday, where you work. And it is this calling to be God's co-worker in creating, redeeming, and restoring. Let me say it again. Monday through Friday, nine to five, where you work. You are a partner with God by faith, by faith in Jesus, in redeeming, in creating, in restoring, and that will matter forever. That's where we're going in this series, and I hope you'll come back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have created a very good world, and you care about the most earthy things we do. We thank you that someday there will be a redeemed and a renewed earth that will last forever. Lord, give us faith to see that what we does matter, what we do matters. And may you guide us to live by faith 9 to 5 Monday through Friday and to lift it up as an act of worship. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.